Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello there. Welcome to today's New Books in Education, one of the podcast channels in New Books Network. This is your host Peng Fei Zhao speaking to you from Gainesville, Florida. Today I will be talking with Joyce Newta on her new book, English Learners at Home and at School: Stories and Strategies. Published this year by the Harvard Education Press, the book sheds sheds light on the lived experience of English learners. It does this in a very innovative and inspiring way. The main body of the book includes six compelling stories, each centering on an English learner's immigration and educational journey. So when I was reading this book. I was first drawn by the stories, how the life of immigrant families unpacked in the United States, a country that was completely new to them. Then I realized there are so many more there beyond one or two families. It's about the challenges that immigrant children and families often encounter, as well as their resilience and diligence. Many of these families also came from disadvantaged minority social groups. It is also a love letter to those teachers who have done so much above and beyond their assigned job responsibilities to support these children. So I'm super excited today to talk with Joyce, not only about the book itself, but also her passion. And her dream expressed through this book. So please join me in the conversation with Joyce Newton, the author of English Learners at Home and at School. Hello, Joyce. Thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Well, congratulations on publishing such an engaging and inspiring book. I very much look forward to、um, having this conversation with you about it.、Let's、so、see. maybe let's yeah, let's get started with maybe first of all、uh, with your、um, self introduction.、Uh, let our audience like know a little bit about yourself and your work. Sure,、uh, I'm a professor of teacher preparation. At the University of Central Florida in Orlando, and、um, I've been at UCF for almost fifteen years, and I've been a teacher educator for twenty、mm, plus years. Before that, I was a teacher. I worked with immigrant students who were learning English as a second language from all different grade levels, from preschool. All the way up through adult, and absolutely loved it. Well, is that、um, is that how you、um, came to the study of English learners? Well, in a way, yes, yes.、Um, I have to go back farther than that、oh, to、cool. tell you my personal connection to it. Started when I was thirteen. Wow! When my parents、uh, and I moved from the west coast of Florida to a very small town in the Italian Alps, and my parents placed、oh, really? me. Wow! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and、uh, they placed me in an Italian-speaking high school, even though I didn't know any Italian. And we had never spent time in Italy before, so it was really a、uh, a life changing experience for me, because I had been a very good student before we moved there.、Um, my parents were older, and they sort of semi retired, and and、uh, so this was the reason that we went. And、uh, once I started school there, not knowing the language, it became really apparent that、um, that I was in trouble. <laughs> that、uh, the the teachers there had never experienced having a student who didn't know the language of instruction, and so they didn't know how to help me. And even though I had been a strong student before, I ended up failing the ninth grade. 
Oh no. Yeah. And then repeating it again, um, at which point I had developed some fluency in the language from having lived there a year, but the high stakes tests that they had at that time, which were all essay tests and were graded for grammar and style, et cetera, as well as the content, um, I could not reach the grades that I needed to be able to continue in high school. And the teachers there and a, and a counselor had suggested that I consider uh, another pathway to a career, uh, such as uh, housekeeping or something that wouldn't require a high school diploma because they didn't believe that I had any potential since I wasn't able to pass my classes. Um, so fortunately, my parents realized that this little experiment of living abroad uh, had needed to come to an end. <laughs> and we moved back to Florida. And at that time, there were a lot of Southeast Asian refugees that had moved into the city where I was from, St. Petersburg. And many of them were at my high school. Somehow, I had an empathy for some of what they were going through. Certainly, I didn't have this, the struggles and difficulties that they did as refugees, but I understood sure. what it was like to learn in another language um, while you're learning that language. And I started helping them. And that led to me eventually becoming a teacher of English learners and then a teacher, educator, and researcher about English learners and second language learning. Well, thanks for sharing that. Now I can see this is really like a long-term passion for you. Yes. And I can see, you know, why this is your profession. And um, it's, it's such an interesting story because like, it feels like you were in those students' shoes before. And you were, I mean, I don't know if... At that time, they um, people in Italy, they had a term called English learner, but it sounds like you were an English learner yeah. in Italy, right? Right, right. I was an Italian learner. And oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> they didn't have any term for that. And uh, they really didn't know what to do with me. I mostly uh, was sitting back in a corner of the classroom by myself. Um, and occasionally, you know, I'd be given a, a blank page of paper to, to write uh, my test answers on. And I turn it back in with not much <laughs> on it. And, uh, and I think they just gave up on me. And I often ponder what my life would be like if I hadn't had the, the affordance to be able to go back home and to learn in a language that I know very well. And so I, I relate to these students uh, because I know that language can make such a difference in, in the life of a student. Right. Yeah. I mean, that really shows us how much the students, a student's opportunities for a better life is tied with, in some circumstances, tied with their language proficiency, right? Yes, absolutely. That's, that's a message in this book <laughs> <laughs> that I hope comes through. Uh, and that there are, of course, good reasons why it's important for students to know the language well, to use the language well. But we also can't let it become a barrier for them to achieve. And so teachers in particular can make a huge difference if they are informed and prepared to work with these students. Yeah, see, like, I think that's really like a good place where we make this shift from um, your story um, to this book. And I think it, it you summarize it so well that, you know, the the stories and how you present the stories in the book just showed us vividly, you know, how important it is for educators to understand their lives and their lived experience, um, you know, uh, 
I mean, the English learners. But I know, you know, for um for this podcast, we are really like trying to introduce the book to a wider audience. And mm-hmm. I know English learners is a term that commonly used by a lot of educators, but maybe not for many of our audience. So um maybe you could give us like a brief orientation of who are those students that you refer as English learners and what shared characteristics they have? Yes, Uh, there are so many terms that are used for students who have uh, commonalities with the students that I'm focusing on in this book. There are terms such as dual language learners, multilingual learners, emergent bilinguals, and then there's this federal term. It's it's actually a term that's that's in uh, federal um, statutes that um, describe a student uh, in uh, pre-K through 12 and into community college uh, college level um, who are residents of the U.S. who have. Um, proficiency in English that is developing and that it is not at uh, grade level yet. Uh, And so that, in a nutshell, uh, qualifies them to be considered English learners. So they are still acquiring the English language while they are learning all the subjects uh, in their uh, program of studies at whatever level, pre-K through uh, post-secondary. in the language that they're still learning. Um, so it's it's kind of a technical term. And I, I grappled with <laughs> using other terms that, um, that people might be more familiar with, but I really wanted this book to be clear that we're talking about language uh, in a very um, particular way and that it's a major focus of this book in terms of these immigrant students and the immigrant families that these students come from, the the role and and issues related to their acquiring the English language during this process. I see. So it sounds like the English learners, this part, like this group of students are a hugely diverse group and they may come from like very different life paths or cultural backgrounds. I wonder, you know, that just makes me wonder, you know, how challenging it would be for teachers, educators to support such a diverse group. Because, like, it feels like it's almost impossible to, I don't know, to, to talk about this group of students as a group, except that they all need to learn how improve improve their English. Yes, I said in the book that there's as much diversity among them as there is diversity between them and- Yeah, uh, I noticed that part. Yeah, yeah I was like, mm, this and is children, a very interesting statement. Yeah, children who grew up speaking English because they can come from all different socioeconomic levels. They can have had a previous education that was very strong. They could have had interrupted previous education. They could come from different language backgrounds. Um, so many different factors that um, fall under the, the term English learners. And I, I wanted to make that clear in the book through having the diversity of stories and cultures and languages and, and uh, contexts. Um, but what's, what's different for students, and, and this comes through in the stories as well, is there are program models in schools that are intended to support these students. Um, some models that are effective and, and well-known in education are dual language programs, which a, a number of the stories t- talk about. Um, and these programs actually use the home language and uh, the English language and in instruction, usually uh, in a ratio of at least 50% 
of each, sometimes uh, a greater percent of the home language. Um, and so these work really well when students, when there's a large number of students in a certain location where you can provide these uh, resources um, to this group. But sometimes we have students who are, immigrate into an area where they're the only person uh, or the only family that speaks the language where they're from. Uh, that was in, in a story about a refugee girl in, in the book called Dibanesha. Yeah, uh, Dibanesha, you know, yeah. <laughs> she, she uh, you know, the dual language option wasn't really there for her to learn from her in her home language, but she was placed in a dual language school, a school that had a dual language program. And even though she wasn't in that dual language program, the, the value that was given to bilingualism and multilingualism at that school by offering a dual language program uh, cut across all the different classes and elements of the school. So that's a really critical part is that the schools value and consider the students' uh, language and cultural backgrounds as assets. Um, so dual language is, is a particular model, the kind of support that they get. There are English as a second language type programs that are provided in other uh, schools that don't have dual language or sometimes in schools that also have dual language. And this is a bit of a traditional model where there's uh, a group of teachers who are experts in teaching English as a second language, and they spend time with students in the classroom uh, with their classroom teacher, co-teaching, or uh, sometimes they work individually with the students outside of class time. And um, that, that is a model that's used in many places that have students that come from very different language backgrounds. And then we have our sink or swim approach, which is like what I experienced in Italy, <laughs> yeah. sink or swim in an Italian school. And, right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so this is uh, something that, that I have been working to help teachers uh, overcome, <laughs> help teachers um, and administrators uh, move on from and, and provide support for these students because it, it makes a, an enormous difference in their achievement and in how quickly and how well they acquire the language of instruction and the language of assessment. Um, so uh, I do not recommend the sink or swim approach, uh, but I will work with, with uh, schools and teachers that have that approach to try to help them to provide every kind of support that's possible. Well, this is so interesting. I mean, when you started to talk about those programs, I, I can immediately feel uh, or get to know how, how much knowledge you have in this domain. And then also, um, from you know, I'm more like an outsider of this um, field. I I could immediately see that you know uh, at American schools, um, like institutional was maybe a little bit better prepared for those um, English learners. I don't know. I mean, what kind of institutional arrangements those English learners uh, need to go through? when they started their uh, education journey here in the United States? I think there's just a, a, a lot of difference between uh, one place to another. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, it, even within the same town, there can be a lot of variance. And even within the same school, uh, a point that I made is that, um, you can be in a school that overall does a very good job of working with English learners, but there can be one teacher who really isn't quite there yet <laughs> that right. can, can affect yeah. a student um, very uh, greatly uh, in that year that they're together or uh, 
you know, you could have a wonderful teacher uh, at a school that maybe the school's policies and practices in terms of how they support English learners isn't isn't adequate. But uh, you have a teacher that has a lot of knowledge and skills and and passion for it that's there. So sometimes it's haphazard. Um, and my work as a as a researcher and a teacher educator has been to sort of uh, stratify <laughs> um, these different levels of support and receptivity to English learners and attempt to raise each one up uh, through support that will work with the context that they have. Um, I feel for every individual student who is in this situation, who uh, who has a teacher that doesn't know how to help them or who is at a school that doesn't have any policies or practices in place to help them. I feel deeply for that student. And um, many people in my field use an argument that English learners are uh, an increasing presence in our schools. And there's an estimate there are about 5 million English learners in the, in the U.S. Wow. Wow. That's <laughs> but that argument, you know, that argument is, is important and that we absolutely need to be prepared for um, the volume of English learners, but we have to remember that it's each individual child deserves a teacher who knows how to how to provide the best education possible for that child, given that child's needs. And, um, and so that's, that's going to keep me busy working in this field for a really <laughs> long time, because <laughs> there's always someone uh, who needs uh, guidance and help uh, and support in working with English learners uh, in their classrooms or in their schools. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, with that, I can't wait to jump into this book. You know, uh, I feel like we have already set up a really good stage for us to talk about the book, because like now we have a better understanding of how important and urgent this issue is. And um, and it's, it's, it's both on the individual level, it just matters so much to those um English learner students also, you know, on the, as you said, the program level and institutional level in terms of those, you know, resources that the whole society needs to put into schools and communities to support them. So I want to ask you, like, what do you hope to achieve in this book? I wanted to expand the reader's compassion for the students and the families in these stories uh, so that that would transfer to a greater compassion for and understanding of students who might be similar, who end up in their classrooms or their schools. Um, I wanted to do it in a, as a gentle nudge, <laughs> not, <laughs> not uh, a, uh, prescriptive um, approach, but really to put in the stories, relatable events and characters, and that they would perhaps see their own students in these stories and realize they don't know a lot about their English learner students and their families, perhaps, maybe they do. Right. And if they do, that is wonderful. And I commend them. But it's there's a concern in education often that teachers can be quite different from their students, uh, from their cultural background, and therefore there are things they don't understand. I think this is another manifestation of this, um, and it can be extremely different, uh, the, the backgrounds that these children and their families come from in terms of what they think about uh, the role of the teacher and the student, um, how they view their students' future potential and, and what they should be doing uh, to prepare for it. There are just so many differences um, 
And it's important for the teachers to, first of all, gain some curiosity from reading these stories and seeing how different things can be, but also how many similarities uh, that they can can gravitate toward <laughs> to feel grounded and, and not completely um, awash in everything being different and um, di- diverse, but something, a thread that um, runs between all these stories, uh, m- multiple threads that run between these stories that they can um, connect to. And um, for example, the, the parents... Um, sacrifices and their their vision for the future for their children. That's a theme that cuts across all these stories and something that they can be thinking about too when they interact with their own English learners and, and perhaps uh, in parent conferences, uh, ask a couple questions about that and and they might be surprised what they find out. Right. Yeah. Now, as I, um, you know, um, as you were talking about, you know, those um, themes that cut across the different stories, I can see definitely, you know, parents all sacrifice so much and they all have such um, a grief and a brief, uh, a brave um, spirit. Mm-hmm. Like to bring their children to this completely new country, mm-hmm. and uh, one thing I want to uh, t- ask him about is that I found it super interesting that in order to achieve this goal uh, that you set for this mm-hmm. book, you are mainly telling stories, and the major body of the book is made of six stories, each featuring one English learner and their family. The uh, English learners featured in the book uh, at different ages and stages of their education and speak different languages and their families migrated to the United States through different channels. So um, why Why storytelling? Well, I've written a number of books that were very instructive. And um, as I continued writing books intended for educators, I, um, I wanted not only to, to reach their intellects, but to, to reach their hearts. And I found as I was progressing in, in my craft as an author for um, educators, I began to incorporate short little snippets, vignettes or stories about students in the materials that were uh, textbook oriented on on teaching methodology and and so forth. And I found that the teachers really connected with these little vignettes. And in the teacher education program that I'm part of, there became a vocabulary of the students' names across courses. And even other faculty would begin to talk about, in in this case, uh, Edith, Edgar, and Tassir, three students that were in a previous book that was very focused on teaching about methodology and the stories were in the background. Um, And it was so exciting to see that we had built something that connected across this teacher preparation curriculum. And it enabled our teacher candidates to to have a different way of approaching how they planned instruction, how they they taught in experiences in in a real classroom or um, at the university and in micro teaching, when they actually thought that they were preparing their instruction for a classroom that included these characters that were in the previous book. Uh, they, they cared more. They wanted to be, it wasn't an abstract thing anymore. Oh, here's the five things you need to do to make sure your English learners are uh, getting their needs met. Instead, it was, I need to make sure that this little girl that I've learned about isn't going to sit there lost. I need to make sure that this 
young man is being challenged enough uh, to his his level of challenge so that his proficiency grows and and so that he's able to be reclassified. And um, it just put a different um, goal to all of the work that they did in the courses. And so I got asked a lot, we love these stories. Can you give us more stories? <laughs> and so I just decided to flip it with this book and I made the stories prominent and then the facts and figures and research and theory in the background. Well, cool. So there is a backstory about these stories now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, I can't wait to um, hear you talk about one of the stories. I'm going to ask you to maybe just pick one story from, you know, the six major stories you presented in the book and gave us an um, overview or summary of the story about the family and students and what message you want to convene uh, through telling the story. Oh, sure. Well, you know, I love them all. It's like, like sure. my children, right? Yeah. <laughs> I can't, can't yeah. pick a favorite. Um, but, there's no favorite, right? <laughs> yeah. But um, there's a song uh, lyric that I like. And it, it says, I cried when I wrote this song. And um, so I can say that I cried when I wrote this chapter. Oh, um, wow. And this is chapter three about Josue. Yeah. And the, um, the Mexico, uh, the, uh, yes, the yeah. boy from um, the South of Mexico, Chiapas, region right. of Mexico. Um, and it's very real to me. It's the longest story in the book. Um, and it's very real to me because all of these stories are compilations of students either that I've worked with or that my students have worked with. Uh, my students who have gone on to be teachers have been really generous and letting me come out and visit and meet students over the years. So I'm, I'm staying in the game. <laughs> and uh, uh, so um, these are people who are such heroes that I'm talking about. And that really moves me. The, the mother, the the teachers, the the migrant advocate, those all are compilations of uh, people that I've worked with who have done as much and more as what is in this story. So it it, it moves me deeply. This is a story of a a young boy who was born in the U.S. Um, his parents were migrant farm workers, undocumented. And um, they struggled mightily with uh, the financial insecurity, the, the transience of that lifestyle, and um, a struggle also between uh, the parents about what the right path was for Josue and his sister. Um, Josue came to a... a town where he was able, his family was able to stay put for a longer period of time than typically a migrant family could uh, because of uh, a nursery there that needed them for more than just a season, but for the year round, which gave him an opportunity to really thrive in school. He had been moving around in and out of school, very difficult for him, not only to learn English, but just uh, the gaps in in his exposure to the curriculum and instruction were really detrimental to him. And uh, he had this opportunity where his mother was pushing for um, being able to stay in this one place for his benefit, for his sister's benefit. And, and they did that. And um, I don't want to give away everything of the story, but um, sure. <laughs> <laughs> when, that's a super delicate balance. You know? Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah. Um, so the, the school that he was placed in was one that had a dual language program. And even 
uh, at that school, as wonderful as that school was, there were questions about whether he, with his interrupted schooling and his literacy skills in either language that were well below grade level, whether he should be in the dual language program because it was under scrutiny uh, as uh, a bilingual program in the community, whether it would uh, be worth the funding that it, it required to have a program um, that used both languages. So the teachers were very protective of the program because they didn't want their test scores to be uh, brought down by a student who was struggling. And one teacher went to bat for him. That was, you know, one of the points that made me cry <laughs> because I knew the <laughs> teacher that had done that for a student like him and many others. Um, and who, who said, why should we say no without giving something a try? <laughs> and she was able to get him into dual language and she was able to work with him. Uh, and there was a migrant advocate at the school who was an angel, you know, just an absolute angel. And she's uh, based on a real person who is someone that I admire greatly. And stories like hers often don't get told, but if you ever, feel down or feel that uh, you, you're uh, not getting credit uh, for something you've done, uh, you can think about Miss Julie and what she's done to make a difference in the lives of the migrant children that she works with and the enormous successes that those students have had over time. Time and get, again, I have taught some of her graduates uh, as they prepared to become teachers and went back to the migrant community. So I wanted to feature the heroics of the teachers, of the migrant advocate, of the mother who fought for her son and the community as a whole who valued bilingualism and who found a way to uh, enable Josue to thrive. So that's my favorite story. Amazing. This that is like I read that story. I mean, I I, I don't want to say more about it because I I really hope that our audience could really just go there and read read the story themselves. But it's it's really a touching story. And uh, well, you were talking about that. You know, the whole story just made me think of. Recently, uh, just because of the COVID pandemic and everything related with school disruption, there is this larger scale, maybe societal level um, anxiety from parents and teachers and maybe policymakers about, oh, what shall we do? Our kids um, have been like so, have been so left behind you know, because of the, you know, all kinds of disruptions. And then I've seen people started to talk about, you know, look at those um, uh, immigrant families, their experience, and to like think about really like, we, we have a lot of expertise in terms of like, we have a lot of knowledge about how to cultivate continuity and stability, sustainability. Mm -hmm. And also I feel like the whole society should just, uh, you know, learn if there's anything we could learn from the learning disruption that, for example, my kid experienced. Mm -hmm. Honestly, I feel like I should be just a more um, sympathetic or more um, supportive of their education. Yes, yes. And I'll, I'll go back to Josue's story, Miss Julie. Uh, and this is, this is very true. And it, I guess part of writing the book during the pandemic uh, gave me an opportunity to address some of these things. She oh, went out in, cool. in a van with hotspots to, to different uh, residences that didn't have internet uh, to make sure that these students could stay current with their work. And it was just such a struggle 
uh, like like you said, for families uh, for whom English is not their home language, um, for them to learn, for their children to learn remotely, because it's already difficult in the classroom to get teachers who have a small number of English learners in their classrooms to teach in an accessible way to them, to make sure that they're providing visual support, that they're uh, demonstrating things, doing things that uh, connect language to to nonverbal communication. And that becomes even harder if you're teaching on Zoom or you're giving a lot of assignments on Canvas, you know, uh, um, a learning platform. Um, And we saw a lot of backsliding with English learners during this period of time. Um, so that's been that's been something we've been working on, my, my colleagues and I, in, in putting together resources for parents and also for teachers and, and directly for students to help them continue to develop uh, proficiency in their home language and in English and to have access to the curriculum with support for them to understand the content. Um, And I think that's an ongoing thing. We should have been doing that before the pandemic. Uh, That would have been a wonderful way to to provide enhancement and extend what we can do in the classroom. Um, So maybe that's an upside of this, that there's a lot more focus on improving how we do remote learning and opening up opportunities for students to have support through remote learning that didn't exist before. So I'm, I'm offering one positive outcome from the pandemic. <laughs> yeah. So, so it sounds like, um, like the disconnection here seems to be um, as students go back to their homes and they rely on their parents for, I mean, at least those younger students, they rely on their parents for, um, say, assistance in remote learning. And I don't know, like, you know, how much parents could help if parents themselves are still struggling with um, English communication and how much uh, schools are being proactive in reaching out to those uh, families and parents. Yes, I did a study with colleagues in hospitality, <laughs> and uh-huh. um, we we interviewed 19 human resource managers at major hotels about their language policies and whether how they supported employees who who worked there who weren't proficient in English. And our research showed really clearly that not only did the the workers there who were adults who had many children in uh, K through 12 or PK through 12 uh, schools in the area, the research showed that they um, they needed support in acquiring English to be able to be promotable, to be able to um, even be versatile in their jobs, um, but they also needed support related to technology. And often the support that they provide, the companies provided for English were technology-based. So it was like a double barrier for them. They're like, here, you can do the Rosetta Stone or you can do this or that. Um, And so it's really clear that we have to think about potential barriers when we deal with families um, and ensure that, that we provide ways for them to uh, reach over those barriers and access what they need. That's so cool. And thinking of where you, <laughs> like where you live right now and where you work, I realized that perhaps it's a really good location to study the hospitality industry. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that was a, a fun and interesting study to do. And there was just a whole spectrum of, of awareness among uh, hotels as to the assets that their um, immigrant workers uh, offered to them. I see. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that. Uh, that's <laughs> a really interesting uh, side story in relation with this um, story about this young young boy. 
Um, you know, I think you um, I I I still want to talk a little bit more about those stories because I just can't <laughs> stop thinking of them. Um, but for each of the stories, you have suggested some activities for readers to engage in, and I. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about those activities, because like I feel like those things are particularly helpful for me when I was reading the book. I I I noticed some of the plots, but I don't really know. You know, for example, hey, this teacher is using some specific strategy or pedagogy to intervene, or there is a different program, etc. Um, yes, so the the stories are across all of them. They they address uh, a planned <laughs> array of issues that are important for educators, and I think really any anyone in public service, um, I, I think it's applicable to to them as well. Um, and they were seated with these details. And the idea is that the reader has an opportunity to, to dig into these details and analyze them. So the stories aren't telling you, okay, this is about this and that's about that. And you need to learn about this. They're, they're, they're showing you what is happening when the, when the teacher does this. <laughs> you know, This is what happens in this story. And you can see either the, the wonderful benefit of the decision made or, or the maybe not so wonderful uh, outcome. And, um, and so that's, that was meant to create a reflection in this analysis and also discussion. So the, I have written books before and I have read books that have, questions at the end of each chapter, and they just seem kind of um, standard sort of questions. But the the question, I worked really hard on the questions at the end, because I wanted to, there's so much fodder for thought and discussion from the details of the stories that I wanted to uh, help the reader um, engage with that. And, um, And I wanted to help the reader apply so many of these details to the context that the reader is teaching in or, or, or providing services to these communities in. So um, they kind of, it's sort of a give and take, put, put the details in the stories to make, to, to elicit thought and reflection and then have questions that um, heighten that and enable discussion and hopefully then application. So it sounds like it's a really helpful book for teachers, educators. I'm just wondering, like, you know, for um, other people wearing other hats, for example, you know, just for a general um, pub, uh, um, audience or reader or policymakers or, um, you know, parents, community leaders, I wonder, you know, what are some of the things they can get from this book? Yes, yeah, I I have thought a lot about broadening who would read this. And I think stories lend right. themselves to that, right? If this was a textbook on teaching these students, there's there's only a limited number of people that that, that would apply to. But this is bringing up, so many different facets of this immigrant experience and and the additional complication of or complexity of learning the language while learning the new systems, while learning the culture, while resettling all these things. So I think that could benefit many different professionals, many different people who might want to know more about immigrants in our country and in this community. I hope it's a, an accurate and again, compassionate and gentle portrayal of, of their lives and that it, it causes this kind of reflection uh, for readers wherever they're at, whatever their focus is. 
Um, I do have a plan and, and you get to be kind of the first to hear about a new <laughs> application of this book. Uh, this is the first I've shared. We just received a small grant. I'm working with a, a theater company. Um, oh, cool. Wow. Company, and we're going to be doing a performance. We got funding to do one performance and uh, handpick an audience for feedback a performance of Lorena's story, the last story in the book. Um, And it will have actors. Uh, Lorena is from Venezuela. And so it will have actors from Venezuela uh, reading the dialogue of the different characters um, in in character. So the younger voices, the older voices. Um, And we're going to have pauses in the um, in the performance to stop and allow not only discussion but also expression in other ways of how the stories resonated with the audience and so it could be different things for different audiences we're going to start with educators but that could go to different groups of you know counselors public servants of different kinds um, so, that's one thing that uh, I'm going to be working on with my colleague, uh, Nadia Garcon, um, who has a theater company called Descolonizarte Teatro. And it's a bilingual theater company uh, that uh, I'm very excited about working with. Um, we submitted another grant to take the stories of the book, again, with, with Nadia and bring in uh, a counselor. Um, uh, uh, we, it's a mental wellness grant. And we uh, submitted a project where we would do something similar with adults who are immigrants who are at, a, at an advanced level of English proficiency taking adult ESL classes. They would use this book and we would have um, mental health resources, talking about the stresses of immigration, using issues brought up by the stories that they can connect with to uh, talk about uh, their own stresses and difficulties and resources. And we can provide information about resources to help with that. And we're going to be using um, an approach uh, that uh, Augusto Boal who is the author of the theater of the oppressed developed. Mm-hmm. Called it. Yeah, and I see. yeah. You're familiar with him? Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah. It's, uh, 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 using, very well known. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, using an aesthetic process where um, just in case they are um, these adult ESL learners uh, would like other means of expressing besides language, we're going to have, opportunities for them to create arts and crafts that bring up their own stories, issues, obstacles they've faced, um, goals that they have that are all sparked from our reading the story, unpacking the story, uh, and discussing aspects of the story, and then letting them make the story related to their own story. Wow, that's so wonderful. And um, I, I can totally see here this connection of this um, expansion of the project in terms of getting more people involved. Because like one question, I, it actually occurred to me when I was reading the book was that I felt like the teachers were doing so much more than they were expected to do or they were asked to do. Like for example, in the first one or two stories, I was seeing the teachers, uh, they reached out to the parents and they introduced jobs to the, uh, like one teacher specifically introduced uh, a parent, an immigrant parent, a job that mm-hmm. is in the school. And yes. then like they were trying to um, raise money or finding resources to um, say install the um, security system for a family who, a refugee family 
who were suffering from some of the um, previous violent experience. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you know, given the kind of workload the teachers are having nowadays and the challenges of the work, like I was, I was wondering like how come they could do so much, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll, I'll first say that uh, I think you can tell by now that I'm a huge proponent for dual language programs. And, um, and so it, in, in situations where a school has a thriving dual language program, it really isn't just one individual, uh, the one teacher who is marshalling all these resources, but it really is a team effort. There are others that are, are ready to respond. And I, those things are all true that you just mentioned. Those are things that I witnessed happening. Um, but I've also seen teachers come together with their own networks and, and get a used car for a parent who couldn't get the child to school on wow. time or regularly uh, because this, the child was within the two mile limit where they had, they couldn't take a bus. Um, right. So I think that teachers have wonderful networks and they rely on each other and family members and members of other groups that they belong to, to call in for help when things are needed with, with the case of the, of Dibanesha and the, right. the teacher helping with getting an alarm system, um, the teacher was connected with the social service, which was the refugee resettlement agency, uh, highest that um, that could make connections to find resources too. So I think that's a message of the book that you know the the saying it takes a village that teachers that are uh, connected to the village and that know these resources can, can be a conduit for these families um, in both directions, for the agencies that provide these things uh, and for the parents that need these things. So um, it's not just the teachers alone. They're very few lone actors. <laughs> They're usually you know, connected to a network of really caring uh, individuals um, who want to help. Yeah, no, I can see this. And I can see, um, honestly, I think after reading the stories that make me really rethink the role of those teachers, <laughs> you know, not only as the person who interact with students on a daily basis to teach and to engage with them academically, but how much more a teacher can offer. Yes, yes, yeah. I get, I still, I get, emails and texts and calls from former students who are teaching, who, who putting out a call, you know, has anybody got a use this or that, you know, the, these students need it. Um, as I talked about Miss Julie, she had a connection at the airport that where she was able to get the snacks that they were going to throw out from the airplanes uh, after so many days. And every week she drove to the airport and picked those up and, took them to the school so those children could have snacks. Um, you know, we all do things uh, in our lives to, to be a good citizen, to help others. And teachers often spend a lot of their uh, goodwill and good efforts on their own students and their own school uh, and families at their own school. I think there's many, many unsung heroes among teachers they don't brag about these things but you find out about it and and you just feel happy that you've chosen this profession and this book is really a love letter for them mm -hmm. um you know with that said i i want to ask you um you know, uh, we have been talking uh, for a while about the book, and I want to ask you what you are working on right now. Like you mentioned some of the ideas to expand the uh, um, the stories or like to reach out to more people. Yes, yes. Well, that definitely is in the works. And um, I'm working with a number of colleagues and 
different disciplines and I'm working with a variety of school districts and schools on a family and community engagement project um, that will better link the the school with these different communities through something that we're calling the bilingual village. And this is simply a network of um, brick and mortar and virtual businesses, agencies, organizations that promote and celebrate bilingualism and that are um, welcoming to those who are learning any of the languages that are spoken in those establishments. Um, At the school, we prepare the students for going out into the community and using their new language in a welcoming environment where these students are identified as speak to me in English or habla conmigo en español, speak with me in Spanish. And they go into these establishments where the employees also have the participating employees have badges that say which languages that they can be addressed in. And so the students get to practice using the language that they're learning and their parents get to practice. They go together as a family and they get to practice the language in in an encouraging environment. Too often for those of us that are learning another language, when we go into the community and try to use it, people are impatient with us. Um, or we feel intimidated to use a language if, if we're not strong in the language and, and we know they're busy. Uh, and so these are places and spaces where second language learners from all backgrounds and different languages can go and, um, and expand their knowledge and use of the language in a, in a friendly uh, environment. Wow, that sounds very exciting. <laughs> so this is is this a this is more like a program building instead of a book project, right? Yes, this program building, and we're going to be doing research on um, the language use, actual cool. conversation analysis on on the students' use of language um, and the parents' use of language in these uh, different venues. Um, there's been research done in Iceland that we're we're modeling this on uh, something called the Icelandic village and we changed it to the bilingual village um, <laughs> but uh, we're really excited about it we've had a few pilots and it's it's gone well we had some of course uh, pauses from the pandemic uh, that made us do everything online but we're getting back out into the community and uh, you know there's a fluidity now uh, between some of these businesses and the school that um, and the parents that uh, patronize these businesses that didn't exist before. So uh, we're excited about that. Um, yes, so I uh, books, I'm not working on a book right now, um, but uh, at some date, I am going to write a book about my experiences in Italy as an Italian learner. <laughs> <laughs> you know why I'm asking about book, right? Because like we are eager to have our book authors to join us in the new books interview. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, I want to know, it's like, when can we have you again? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so nice. I appreciate that. Yeah, I, I, I really have for a long time wanted to write about my own experiences through storytelling, through this type of writing, which is something that I've had to learn over the years, this kind of showing mostly and a little bit of telling uh, type of storytelling. Um, also sometimes called creative nonfiction. So right. I would like to do the same for my own story because um, I think it sheds light on, I've told my story to many, many people in presentations and conferences. And I always have people coming up after saying, you know, I, I was born speaking English I've never thought about what that was like, but then I could see myself in you. If something like that happened to me, I would feel exactly the same and I would have the same struggles. And, and that's what my students are experiencing. I never thought about it that way. So um, I think there's, there would be value in my sharing that experience and how it has driven my passion for this um, discipline, for these students, for this work. 
Absolutely. And we look forward to having you again um, one day after you publish this wonderful book. It'd be, it sounds like a memoir. Or, um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, with that, I feel like we are completing a perfect circle in terms of like we started with talking about your own story and then we um we shift to the stories in the book and now we come back to your plan to write about your story. So it's just it's so wonderful to have you here today, uh, Joyce. And um, thanks again. It's really a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. I enjoyed talking with you. Thank you for your excellent questions. Yeah, I'll do very best with your projects and programs and future book writing. I appreciate it.